Father God, I thank you that we have victory and it has nothing to do with how good we are. It has everything to do with how good you are, how powerful you are, and, and how complete the victory against sin is that you have won. God, may we find our hope, our confidence in, in that and in that alone today. For it's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen. 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 You can have a seat. That was a, that was a pretty mellow way to come into the message. <laughs> Take your Bibles. Hope you have them with you. If you don't, we have Bibles available in the back, and I'd encourage you to, to go back there and, uh, and grab one of those for yourself. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we are going to get there. Uh, I'll explain what I mean by that here in a second. That's kind of daunting, isn't it? Um, while you're turning, I'm going to make a, a special announcement. Uh, Easter's coming. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, Easter's almost here. Uh, this year, it's in your bulletin, this year we're going to do something just a little bit different um, for, for our Easter week, that Passion Week. Um, we, we are kind of going somewhat traditional with our approach to Easter this year, even the message on Easter Sunday is just going to be uh, the story out of John chapter 20 and the story of the resurrection and the empty tomb. Can't go wrong with that story. But we're going to do a couple of things a little different that, that Uniontown really hasn't done before. Um, one of them is, is found in your bulletin, and I can tell you about this one, it's called the, the Messianic Seder. Now, our tradition has been on Friday evenings to do a Lord's Supper together and do a Good Friday service. This year, we're going to tweak it a little bit, and we're going to do a Messianic Seder here in the sanctuary both Thursday night and Friday night. Um, what is a Seder? A Seder really is the, the um, traditional Jewish meal that, that reflects and remembers the Passover event of, of the ancient Hebrews. And, and really, what it does for us is we walk through a Seder together. What we're doing is walking through virtually the same meal that Jesus was having with his disciples in the upper room that night that he was betrayed. And what you find as you walk through the Seder is you find that there are pictures from the Old Testament that are fully completed and fully fulfilled in Jesus and Jesus alone. And it's a wonderful time. We're not going to do a full meal. Um, some of you who are familiar with Seders, uh, you may uh, wonder that. We're not going to do a full meal. We're going to have uh, tables set up. You'll sit at the table, and there will be elements that will have like the food parts, and you'll be able to take pieces of the food and try it, and, and, and we'll walk through it together. It's a, it's a rather informal type time. I mean, it's, it's supposed to be a family time, so um, I'm sure I'll be very formal because that's who I am. I mean, I just can't break out of that mold. But the idea is we're going to do that together. Now, we're doing something because of that. We have to do something that actually I'm uncomfortable with. Um, but it's a necessity, and it's this. We need you to register ahead of time to get your tickets. We're not charging for tickets, none of that. We're not selling tickets. We ain't making money on this. Um, but in order to, to plan accordingly and to make sure that we have uh, seats available when you come, we need to make sure that you are registered ahead of time. So that information is found in your bulletin. You can go to our website, utown.org, with the backslash, and then you do events at UBC. That'll get you to that place. And, and let me tell you, we need you to register early. And this is why. Um, if uh, we just go with the same number of people that came to last year's Good Friday service, we'll sell out both seders. And if that happens, we're going to add another one. Um, because my guess is, um, that there'll be people who will come. Now, now listen, it's not just a, hey, let's get together and play like we're sitting in the upper room. This is an opportunity to present the gospel through and through. And so that's what we want to take advantage of. So we'd encourage you to invite family, invite friends. If you invite a person uh, of Jewish nationality, it is imperative, please hear this, that you describe it to them as a messianic seder. If you invite them to a seder and we introduce them to Jesus, they will leave here incredibly angry. 
So let's not bait and switch, okay? Let's be clear what our intention is. Our intention is to talk about how Jesus has fulfilled the entirety of the Old Testament and how we get to celebrate that, and even more so Easter Sunday when he's risen from the grave, right? So we're excited about that. Get signed up for that. The other thing some of you are going to be excited about, and others of you are going to be like, have a great time. Um, We've been asked before if we'd consider doing this. We're going to do it this year. It doesn't mean we're going to do it every year. This year, we are going to have a uh, sunrise service for any of you who want to come out at 6 o'clock in the morning and stand outside in our parking lot to look at the beautiful sunrise. We're going to observe communion together during that time. It'll just be a 25, 30-minute time together outside. It's a very traditional thing many churches do. A number of you have asked about it. I don't expect all of you there. If you all show up, I will make fun of you because your priorities are crazy. Um, so, um, Easter. Easter isn't just a, a Super Bowl of Sundays for a church. Easter really actually is the reason we get together every other Sunday. And so we're going to take full advantage of that in our community and uh, here at Uniontown. All right? Lots of time before that, but not as much as you think. So, this morning we're in Philippians chapter 2, um, and I'm going to do this completely different. That's why this, this chair is here. Um, Uh, I'm going to teach for most of this morning Um, by way of introduction and introducing us to the passage we're going to look at. I'm actually going to teach, so I will be sitting here when I'm teaching. Now, there should be some wagers as to how long I can actually remain seated. I'm a little fidgety if you haven't figured that out yet, so there's a likelihood I'm not going to stay here long. My goal, though, is to teach and to kind of walk through the biblical background of a a specific word that's used in our passage today. And when we're done with that, that'll be the bulk of our time. And then I'm going to jump out of that, and then I'm going to preach for the last 10 minutes or so, and then uh, we'll continue to celebrate what it is that God's done for us. So let me read the first couple of verses of our passage together, and I think it'll give you an idea and kind of set the course for what I'm going to work through teaching. It's in Philippians chapter 2. It starts in verse 12. Paul says this, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have obeyed, So now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So so this morning, what I want to do by way of teaching, and I'll jump over here, and I'm I'm going to try to try to hold two things at once so I won't be able to use my hands either, so you guys should be worried. (laughs) Um, what I want to walk through is kind of the biblical understanding of what the word salvation actually means. I think for most of us in this room, when we hear the word salvation, we have one definition. And what we fail to understand is that one definition that we hold to really is just one of three aspects of salvation that is mentioned uh, throughout the New Testament. Salvation, as it's mentioned throughout the New Testament, is used in three different ways. There's three different aspects of salvation, and you can look at it past present and future. Past, present, and future. So I'm going to walk through a couple of these with you. First, we're going to talk about the the past uh, aspect of salvation. This is, without question, the most popular aspect of salvation. It's the one we talk about the most in our churches. And it's the idea that that we have been changed. It's the idea that um, we have been, through the work of Jesus, freed from the penalty of our sin. This is what's used in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, if you are saved, there's the word, by grace through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it's God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. So the idea of this past event of salvation is that it's not earned, it's nothing you and I can earn, it's, it's a gift that's given to us, 
And it, it paints the picture for us, the story, <clears throat> excuse me, of the gospel where we're reminded at the onset that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Not, not sick, <laughs> not injured, not hurt. We were dead. There was no life in us. And the re- reason for that is, is, is in the picture of that, um, is a result of, it was a result of us being sinners. Because Romans 3.23, we've all sinned, right? And you see that real clearly as you compare our lives and our realities to the, the Ten Commandments, the giving of God's law found in Exodus chapter 20. I mean, we, we, we have violated God's trust by lying. We've violated his, his plan for sexuality by our own immorality. Uh, we've ignored his commands to honor our parents. We've rejected his authority and we've worshipped false gods, most often those gods being in our own heart. We've, we've robbed and cheated and abused other people. We've lived a life as though we're the, the ultimate end-all, be-all. And, and so all of those things are a, a rejection of the law as God gave it to us in Exodus chapter 20. And as a result of that, all of us, every single one of us, sitting in this room or not, we are all guilty of violating God's law. And so we deserve the just judgment of that violation. We deserve the punishment for the breaking of God's law. And, and God's clear, the punishment for our breaking his law is death. It, it's damnation. It's spending an eternity apart from him. And, and, and so, <clears throat> with that being, <clears throat> excuse me, with that being the, the, the punishment, we, we, we really have a significant problem I mean, it would be one thing if, if God would be able to just overlook our sin, but if God overlooked our sin, he wouldn't be just. He wouldn't, he wouldn't be righteous anymore. So he can't overlook our sin, so he has to do something different. There has to be justice. Somebody has to pay. Somebody's got to receive the punishment for our sin, and that's why Jesus came. And so, so when Jesus came, what he did was he gave us a righteousness that isn't ours. He came in his perfect fulfillment of God's law, and, and he paid the penalty by receiving the punishment that we deserved on himself. So in that very moment, when you confess your sin, in that moment, the, the churchy word is, when you get saved, in, in that very moment that you confess that you're a sinner, both by nature and by practice, and that you confess that Jesus Christ is the Savior, the Son of God who came to save you from your sins, and you call on him to be your Savior, then, then you are no longer dead. You're now made alive. You're, the list of words is there for you. You're accepted. You're redeemed. You're rescued. You're born again. You're, you, your sin debt has been canceled. You have been forgiven. In that moment, you have been given a brand new legal status by God. As you stand in the courtroom of the holy judge God, you are no longer looked at as a convicted lawbreaker. In that moment, you place your trust in Jesus Christ, the gavel bangs, and you are declared justified. In an instant, justified. So now your legal status is no longer lawbreaker, it's now justified. It is now just as if I'd not sinned. The, the, the picture of Christ's righteousness, it is being fully applied to your account, and now you stand before God as being justified. But, but what we need to understand, and this is where I have to be careful to stay teaching and not get preaching, we need to understand it's not just a legal status change. It, it, it's not just this, this legal courtroom language. It actually is a changed family relationship. 
Because no longer are you a stranger, but now you've been adopted into the family of God. So you're not a forgiven servant. You're not a a, a forgiven sinner. You are an adopted child, an adopted son, or an adopted daughter of God himself. And so your, your complete family relationship has changed. So in light of the fact that now your legal status is now justified and your family status is now fully adopted, you can and should and must live a life that is marked by confidence because you know how you stand before the most holy judge. So when you think about the word salvation, and most often when we talk about it in church, that is most often how we talk about it. We talk about it as, as this past event that has happened, that has changed us. We're, we're changed, we're, we're justified. But, but another one, and let me, I'm gonna do this out of order so this ought to confuse not just you, but me too. Um, we're gonna talk about the future aspect of salvation. This one really isn't spoken about a lot using the word salvation. It's spoken a lot about, though. Um, let me give you Romans 13, verse 11. Besides this, you knew, since you know the time, it's already the hour for you to wake up from sleep because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. This aspect of salvation is a future aspect. It's looking ahead to the time then we will be changed. The theological term is glorification. It's that moment where we have been freed from even the presence of sin. We stand in the presence of God Almighty. We look Jesus face to face. Eternity has begun. We are there. There is no more death. There is no more sin. There is no more tears. We, uh, the old is completely passed away. The new is in full effect. And salvation is culminated in that moment, which is a great moment. When we think about the idea of of closing our eyes and breathing our last and having the fear removed from that because we know that when our eyes open again, we are looking at the face of our Savior. There's an eagerness. There's an eagerness that should settle in our soul that we look forward to that moment. So you've got salvation, the aspect of the past. You've got salvation, the the aspect of the future, and and then really the the bulk of our time, and actually what our text this morning is talking about is the present, the present. And so so let me kind of walk through this with you. It it, it goes like this. While, While we are changed and have been changed in justification, and while we will be changed in glorification, in the present moment we are still changing um, that's the idea, the, the theological term is sanctification. So, so in this moment, we, we are to be changed. Let me give you Romans chapter 11, sorry, Romans chapter 12, verses uh, 1 and 2. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, now Paul has just spent the first 11 chapters just unloading on the, the Romans and showing them the mercies of God. He says, in light of those mercies that I've just talked about, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, a holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. The idea here in Romans 12, 1 and 2 it is the idea of sanctification. In this moment, there is an ongoing process, an ongoing process of change that starts the moment you're saved until the moment you breathe your last. It's this ongoing journey of becoming 
holy. Um, we're commanded to be holy in Romans, in Hebrews, and in First Peter. And if I'm going to be honest, it's difficult. Because the command for us to be holy, as those who have been justified in the past, and will be glorified in the future, in this moment, to be sanctified, to be holy, is difficult because that demand for holiness touches every single aspect of our lives. It touches your workplace, it touches your school, it touches your neighborhood, your home. It, it, it touches what you do to relax. It, 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 it touches how you have relationships with other people. Touches your leisure. It, it, it touches your, your everything. There, there isn't an aspect of your life that isn't touched by God's command for you to be holy. And so, with, with all of that, we are not holy people. So that's why it's a, it gets a little difficult, doesn't it? Um, let me let me. I'm going to answer the question: Why really it gets difficult? Um, <laughs> if there's somebody sitting here right now, and, and don't raise your hand, I love you too much. Okay, please don't raise your hand please don't even shout amen, okay? I'm trying to give you a heads up on this one. If there's somebody here this morning like, it ain't difficult to be holy, I have a verse for you. We say we have no sin. We're deceiving ourselves. Notice it doesn't say you're deceiving anybody else. We all know. <laughs> the truth isn't in us. But if we confess our sins, then he is faithful and he is just to forgive us our sins. And he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, so why is it difficult? Let me kind of lay this out for you. It's difficult because in the past, though we've been changed, and we've been freed from the penalty of sin, and in the future, we're going to be removed from the presence of sin. In the present, we are still swimming in the ocean that is filled with sin. It's the air that we breathe. It, it surrounds us. It, it's, it's almost as if, and, and this is a poor analogy, every analogy falls down, um, but, 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 but it's almost as if you and I were prisoners of war and, and our rescue company came and they, they got us out of the jail and we were released from this, this horrible situation where we are tormented and tortured and held against our will and, and we're escaping, but we're still behind enemy lines. And so we're still getting shot at. There's still snipers. There's still sneak attacks. They still know we're on this side of enemy lines, but, but, but we haven't crossed over into the friendly land yet. And that, that's similar to what's happening in our own sanctification. Is day in and day out, you and I are still behind enemy lines. We're still in this place where, where Satan continues to take the shots at us. But here, I think what makes it even harder is that it's not just the world around us taking shots at us. Um, it's actually inside of us. It's our hearts. It's our flesh. And, and what we're told in Scripture is we need to fight the fight against flesh. Romans 13, 14 says this, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't make plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. And so our sanctification, our call to holiness is a call for us to starve the flesh. Um, I am indebted to a man named Joshua Harris who did these pictures. They're not the fanciest things in the world, but I think sometimes we need to see some things, picture-wise, that helps us understand 
the ideas that Scripture's painting for us. So this is a, a little run-through of what it looks like to um, our, our relationship with our own flesh. So let me lay this out for you. First, this is us. See, he's an artist, can you tell? We're <laughs> we, we've been created in God's image, and evidently we've been created without clothes, so for that I'm sorry. Um, but, but we've been created in, in God's image. And then, that's the flesh. Kind of looks like the mucinex phlegm, doesn't it? <laughs> so there you go. So <laughs> the, the flesh is the sinful and, and corrupt desires of our hearts. Now, it's important that we understand a few things about our flesh. First, when, when we read the word flesh, we tend to think our physical bodies. It's not our physical bodies. Our physical bodies have been created by God and are good, Okay. It's not, it's not that we wrestle against my right arm. It's not that I wrestle against my calf muscle. That's not, not what it's talking about. The flesh is our sinful cravings to live for ourselves and to deny God's law and commands and dis- disobey him. So, so it's not our physical bodies. It's also not outside of us. That's one thing that these drawings don't do a great job of, okay? It's not outside of us. Our flesh is actually inside of us. So, so in our, re, our relationship with our flesh, our flesh, before we were saved, before we came to Jesus, we were in bondage. We were slaves to our sinful flesh. Our flesh was the boss of us. Our, our flesh controlled us. Our flesh told us what we did and, and didn't do. I mean, it, it just bossed us around. That was what it was like before Christ. And notice that the chain and the shackle around the neck, that's, that's reality of, of what it was like. However, when we trust Jesus... We're, we're no longer slaves of, of our flesh. We have been freed. So here's the crazy part. So not only is the flesh no longer our boss, you see the chains are removed, but somehow we ended up with clothes. Praise the Lord. So, um, <laughs> but, but it's no longer the boss of us. The chain's broken. Christ has conquered the sin and death and the grave, and we have been freed from the power of sin. We have been freed from the power of our flesh. Now, if you are in Jesus Christ, this is how you relate to the flesh right now. You are no longer controlled by it. However, what you need to understand is after you've come to Jesus, the flesh doesn't just disappear. It's still around, and it's still nagging at you. In your head, it's still noodling around trying to get you to to trip up and to fall. It, It doesn't rule us anymore, but it's still present. Now, Jesus broke the power of the flesh, so there's no chains anymore, And we're free to walk away from the flesh. We've been freed from the the penalty of sin. But until that day we're glorified, the flesh is still in our presence. Um, I think one error of our our understanding is, though, is this, that we think that um, our relationship with the flesh is a 50-50 split. I I think we believe that it's touch and go as to who's going to win the day. And and that's a wrong understanding of what it is we have in Christ. That's a wrong understanding of what it is that we have in the the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. What we're told is that we've been given the power to overcome the flesh. And we're told to do that. And so we we should do that. And so we do overcome. We attack the flesh. We seek to destroy the flesh. Um, Now, in all honesty, it could be the sword of the Spirit, but this is the stick of the Spirit, evidently, but that's okay. So we attack the flesh, we go after it, we try, to, we, we try to shrink it, we try to mortify it, that's the old King James word for it, we mortify the flesh, we try to, to kill the, the flesh, but the problem is, many of us seek to make friends with the flesh. Many of us 
uh, indulge the flesh. We, we, we even get to the place where we begin to feed the flesh. And so the, the, the problem is instead of separating from the things that we should separate from, instead of, giving, uh, uh, instead of resisting temptation, we give in to temptation, we dwell on sinful thoughts, we hang out with people and in places that, that's just going to celebrate the sin of our past, and, and we continue to feed and feed. Instead of resist, instead of trying to mortify, we continue to feed and feed the flesh, and we continue to feed the flesh until eventually the flesh is huge. And now it just pushes us around. And we're not, we're not under control of flesh. I mean, we're still not chained to the thing. But we have fed it now to the place where it is this ginormous beast. And though it doesn't have the right or the authority to control us, we've given it the power to control us. And that's a problem. See, what, what we're being called to in sanctification, what we're being called to throughout the word of God to, to be holy, and what we're being called to even in Romans 13, 14 is to starve the flesh. So it looks like this. <laughs> but too often we feed it. What we need to remember is the flesh will never go away. Not until that day we close our eyes and open them in glory. But in the meantime, in this journey, in these moments, we are changing. And we need to be disciplined, aggressive, patient, and yet still eager for that day and confident in our standing. So, so, so understand this, that making the flesh smaller is a process of the sanctification. And, and, and let me be clear, this isn't legalistic. Um, when it comes to talking about holiness and sanctification, I personally, I was going to say we as a church, I'll just say me, I personally tend to shrink back a little bit. A lot of that has to do with my own upbringing in such a legalistic environment. But what we need to understand is this call to be holy and this call for sanctification, it isn't legalistic. It's not a list of rules that you live by. It's not a list of rules that you judge other people by. Sanctification is a passion and a desire and a longing to imitate your daddy. As a kid, didn't you want to do that? With your little kids, don't they try to imitate daddy? Sometimes. It's just embarrassing. But other times, it's incredibly flattering. And so, so what, what, what Paul is about to call us to is to a level of imitation. And I think we should ring some bells or something because somehow I stayed seated the whole time. Romans chapter 2, I'm going to read 12 and 13 again, and now I'll get to the more comfortable place I will preach. It says this. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. So what, what is happening in this passage is Paul is saying to the Philippian church, I want you to keep on working out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's important that you understand that this is not a one-time event. Work out your salvation. It's not this one-time event. It's not like Popeye, you pop the can of spinach, you're suddenly strong, okay? 
This is an ongoing event. It begins at the moment you, you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and it ends when you close your eyes for the last time. He says, keep on working out your salvation. Obviously, this is not talking about the past event. It's not talking about justification. He's not saying work and earn your salvation in God's eyes. Work and earn that change that only Jesus Christ can bring about. And he's obviously not saying work on your future salvation. That moment when you are in glory and eternity and see Jesus face to face. He's talking about that middle moment, this present moment, this ongoing process, this ongoing journey of sanctification. He says, what I want you to do is keep on working out your salvation with fear and trembling. And if you're going to talk about immediate context, chapter 1, verse 27, this is what he's further describing. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is, work on this salvation, work on your sanctification, bring yourself into a position of holiness as a citizen of heaven should. He's commanding them to live like citizens of heaven. I find it very interesting. There's a lot of different views on this one um, phrase that's in here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's a lot of different views on that. I think contextually, particularly with what comes next in the verse, I think this is what Paul is saying. Fear and trembling as you work out your own salvation, as you work for your sanctification, fear and trembling is a profound lack of confidence in yourself to be able to do this. It's a little different than a lot of different other nuances that are out there. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There should be a shaking in your soul because as you consider the call for yourself to be holy, you can't do it. Can you? It's kind of like that, 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 the, the dumb action movies. For some reason, Armageddon comes to mind with the meteors coming towards Earth. We can't do anything about it, but we're gonna. And they find a way. And Bruce Willis dies. Oh, spoiler, sorry. My bad. <laughs> hopefully, well, hopefully you haven't seen that movie, actually. But. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I can't. It's not in me to do. Hey, guess what? God regularly calls us to do things we can't do, doesn't he? I mean, look at Jesus as he walks. He, he, he looks at this man who says that he has a, I think it's in Mark chapter 3, I think. He's got a shriveled hand, a, a paralyzed hand. And what does Jesus say to the man? He says, stretch out your hand. Can he? No, he can't. Does he? He does. What happens? His hand is made whole. God regularly calls us to do things we can't do. The man laying in his mat by the pool. I just need someone to pick me up and throw me in. Then I'll be healed. And Jesus says, hey, tell you what, pick up your mat and walk. Can he? It's a trick question. Because really he can't, but he can, but he can't, but he can. Wait a minute. See, God regularly calls us to do things we can't do. Peter, hey, Peter, step over the side of the boat. Now, can Peter walk on water? No. Did he? For a moment of time. <laughs> as long as Jesus was empowering him to, <clears throat> empowering him to and, and he was relying on Christ, absolutely he could. So, so, so God regularly calls us to do things that we can't 
do. So here, what Paul says is, live like a citizen of heaven. I can't do that myself. Well, the beauty is, verse 13, for it's God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. God will give you both the desire and the ability to do what he's called you to do. So, so let, me, let, me, let me ask you this. Um, do you, maybe we shouldn't have you raise your hands on this one, but do you, at times, maybe not right this moment, desire to sin? Okay, those of you that are like, I'm not raising my hand, that's your desire to sin, because you want to lie right now, okay? So there you go. Fooled you again. No, the, do you desire to sin? Yes. What does that mean? That means you're alive. It means you're human. It means you're a son of Adam. Do you have a desire not to sin? Um, so the, the best way I've heard this explained is, is this. Let's say that uh, the message, the sermon is about evangelism. And, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm, we call it, okay, here's the deal. Before the day is done, you need to share the gospel with one person when you walk out. And let's pretend like it's a good message. <laughs> um, and you're all like, yes, I'm going to do it. And you're sitting there. And when your heart, what you're thinking is, yes, I'm going to share the gospel with one person. I want to. I want to. And as soon as you walk out the door and see that first person, you're like, go. While we find that tension in our souls, frustrating, discouraging, and even depressing at times. Let me change that for you. Instead, find it encouraging. The battle between your spirit and your flesh is a demonstration of something incredibly significant. You are alive. And it is God working in you the desire to do right. It is God's beautiful gift to us that we end the day and go, man, I should have done better. I want to do better. Is it because you have to do better to earn your place in heaven? No, it's because you want to put a bigger smile on his face today. So God has given you that desire. He's also given you the, the power to do it. That's God working in you. If God wasn't in you, you would not have the ability. You wouldn't even have the desire. So, so live like citizens of heaven. I can't. You can because God is in you and he is developing the desire and he's developing the ability in you to do exactly what he's called you to do. Now, I don't know about you, but, but you hear this, this rousing thing come from Paul like, all right, live like a citizen. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm going to charge up the mountain. And we get in our heads like these big, momentous moments. God is calling me to stand before a firing, a firing squad. And for them to cry out like, if you recant, you can live. And God's calling me to be holy. He's giving me the will and the ability to stand before the firing squad and say, ready, aim, fire. Right? And we, don't we think that it's like God has called us such huge things that we have to accomplish for him? If that's what you're living for, please block your ears as I read the rest of our passage. Let me start in 12 again. Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. How? Do everything without grumbling and arguing 
so that you may be blameless and pure children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life. What Paul says is live like a citizen of heaven and a citizen of heaven will not be a whiner. That's a Hebrew term that I could define a few ways. It's not difficult to see what he's saying right there, is it? Do all things. Well, how many things? Oh, it's not that hard. I mean, he even like, gives you a little hint. He, he moves around the word order so that you know he's not joking around. He's like, all things is in the place of, of, of most important priorities. Like everything, all of it, everything. Do it without grumbling. No complaint, no whispering, no grumbling, no talking in private, no arms crossed, talking under your breath. It's an automatopoetic word. I've done this in here before, but I think it proves the point and helps you understand exactly what grumbling is. So all of you, just say grumble three times. Ready? Go. Now you know what grumbling sounds like. A picture. Paul says, no, 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 no. Citizens of heaven don't do that. Those who are seeking to be holy and sanctified, they don't do that. Do everything without grumbling and complaining. The idea behind complaining is I can come up with intelligent reasons why it's okay for me to feel this way and to say these things. It's to bolster yourself over another person. No, 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 no. A citizen of heaven will not be a whiner. Now, that doesn't mean there's never a disagreement. It does mean that disagreement is expressed and handled in a pattern that makes much of who Jesus is and the commonality we have in him. Which is why Paul has already set the context for us, hasn't he? What I want you to do is I want you to count everybody else more important than yourself. Didn't he say that? And I want you to, to adopt the same attitude that is in Jesus Christ, who having everything gave it all up so that you could have everything. So don't complain. Don't grumble. Don't whine. And when you disagree, disagree in a way that makes much of who Jesus is. In a way that, that honors Christ. Now, please, hear, hear me. Again, I, Philippians is so personal. I think sometimes we have guests come and join us and they're like, oh, he's going after somebody, isn't he? I'm not, okay? The reality is this, though. Again, this is the air we breathe. This is the ocean we swim in. We, we need to beware of our own grumbling and complaining as those who are citizens of heaven. Your social media. Well, I, I don't... Your time in the office. Well, he's a... About your parents. Do everything without grumbling and without complaining. That's a mark of a citizen of heaven. Here, 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 just in case, maybe this encourages you. 
it's hard. It is. We got a lot to complain about. Do we? See, see, why does he command us not to grumble, not to complain? i got to wrap this up real fast. Duh, the, the, the reason we need to, to not grumble, not complain, is first of all, he commands it. So, duh, it's like dad said so, don't do it. Okay, that's easy. The other one is because it's with, he's talking about within the church. He's talking about uni- unity and, and, and humility that needs to be um, pictured within the church as we r- relate to each other, absolutely. But then he goes on here and he says, you don't do it so that when you are seen by the outside world, you shine like stars in the world that are holding forth the word of life. You, you don't grumble or complain so that other people can see. This, this, this is not a normal person who can use there's social media in a way that makes much of Christ and doesn't complain about the current events of the day. It's not normal today, is it? It's not. It's not normal for the person who can have a decision made against them in the office and not complain to all of their cubicle mates. It's not normal for, for children who are at home who are told no for something they really wanted and mom and dad leave the room. It's not normal for those children not to look at their siblings and go, man, she is just awful today, isn't she? I mean, it's not normal. It's not, it, that's completely not normal in my house. My kids never talk like that. <laughs> Daddy might a few times, but the kids never do. Not about Stephanie. Mm, I got to think before I speak. <laughs> Dang. Um, but it's not normal. It's not normal for us to live in the world like that. And to not, not, it's not normal. And so when other people take note, what do they take note of? Not you. Not you. Too much of the call for holiness has been, let's make sure everybody sees how good I am and how moral we are. No! We live a life that is marked by sanctification and holiness so the outside world will look and you will have an opportunity to shine like a star in the night sky as you hold firm and extend the word of life in front of you. Okay, Frank, so how, 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 do, I, how do I overcome the desire to, to grumble or whine? Simple, reflect regularly on the gospel. Go and remember what you didn't have and what you couldn't get yourself. How lost and hopeless you were and what might have happened had one of those stupid decisions you made meant that you faced God on your own in that moment. And you knew you couldn't do anything about it yourself to save you from his wrath. But in Jesus, what you do have, not just the legal term of justified, but that incredible family term of being adopted, the change in relationship that you have with him and will have him forever, And realizing that as good as it is right now, it is going to be so much better. We live like citizens of heaven and we don't whine because we reflect on his faithfulness. We reflect on his grace. We reflect on his goodness in your life because friends, we are far better off than we deserve. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for a time to study it, to chew on it, Lord, even to enjoy it. Thank you, Father, for the truth that is in your word. God, I thank you that you loved us enough to rescue us from ourselves. 
God, I thank you that you rescued us from our sin and from our flesh. And God, I pray we would live in light of that power instead of continuing to yield to the temptation that surrounds us. Lord, I pray that as citizens of heaven, those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that we would reflect on your goodness time and time again and to remember how we are so far better off than we ever could possibly deserve. Amen.